Hello, listeners. Um, this is another episode of Beckett's Babies, and it's a very special episode because it's our 10th episode. Woo! And so in honor of that, double digits, um, we have given you a special glimpse into the life of our namesake, Samuel Beckett. Um, and what makes this especially cool is that his birthday is coming up this week on April 13th. And it also happens to be the birthday of Sarah Cho. Yeah, that's my birthday. So how do you feel about that, Sarah? <laughs> oh, I feel great. Uh, I turn the big 3-0. Oh my goodness. Yep, yep. So listeners, if you feel inclined to reach out on our social media and say, hey, happy birthday, Sarah. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, that would be a really good birthday present. Yeah. Listeners, yeah. Is to listen to our podcast and then tell Sarah Cho how much you appreciate that she was born. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, without further ado, enjoy. Happy birthday, Beckett. babies i'm sarah cho and i'm sam collier and today we're gonna talk about samuel beckett uh (laughs) why because we're named after him and i feel like we need to do some fun chat about samuel beckett right sam yeah that's right he's our namesake why did we name it why did we name (laughs) our show after him i really can't remember i think that we were taking a class was it was it postmodern? Maybe it was postmodern because I just remember we were reading like collection of his plays, and then during the time we were like, "Hey, we should start a podcast." And then, <laughs> and I do remember at one point we were like, "What about Chekhov's children?" Right, right, right. Yeah, that was one of our uh, potential titles and names for our podcast. But aren't you guys glad that we came up with Beckett's babies instead? <laughs> like. Yeah, I know. We had like a long list of names and I mm-hmm. I think it's been lost to time, but I have this mm-hmm. memory of a list mm-hmm. of many possibilities. I personally like the name Beckett's Babies more than Chekhov's Children because Chekhov's Children sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> it does. <laughs> and I didn't want to give our listeners the wrong impression that we're going to scare you. Beckett's Babies, it does sound more cheerful. And plus we get all these ads to our um, Beckett's Babies account of like preschool (laughs) companies. Yeah. Um, And fathers or mother parents Googling Mm -hmm. uh, how to raise their children and they come across Mm -hmm. Beckett's Babies. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And then they follow us. Mm-hmm. And then we get all those followers, <laughs> and then and then halfway through they were like, "Oh wait, this isn't what I thought it was. Uh, this is not about raising my child." <laughs> okay, so. so Sarah, who was Samuel Beckett? He was this Irish playwright lived in France for a long time, I believe. 
And this is really amazing, listeners. We just learned that he has the same birthday as Sarah Cho. Yeah, that's kind of pretty, which is really that's weird. Really weird. His birthday's April thirteenth. I mean, mine's April thirteenth. We're both Aries, so I'm pretty <laughs> sure we're both very stubborn. Although he was um, born in nineteen oh six, so a little bit right. earlier than you. Right. I that is really creepy. <laughs> and he died in the year that I was born. <laughs> so weird. I, I looked at it. I was like, "Wait, eighty nine? Like his reincarnation? No, that wouldn't make sense because he was died in December. Yeah, right. But it is quinky dink. I don't know. Yeah, those yeah. Aries playwrights. Also, yeah. I mean, I'm just gonna put this out there, but I think Sam is a really good name for playwrights. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So maybe that's maybe maybe we did know his birthday and we did and then his name was Sam. <laughs> so we're like we gotta combine we, and we chose that for that reason. Yeah. It's possible. It's always possible. possible. You know, it's so funny. Every you have such great memory of our time in Iowa. I honestly like everything you tell me, like, do you remember that time, this instant, this class or whatever? And I'm like, I don't remember. It. It's just like shut out of my mind. It's like I have these like glimpses of memories, like where I was and what I was eating, or you know, but I just like don't remember anything specific. I don't know. Maybe we just remember different things. So. No, but then when you, but as soon as you tell them to me, I'm like, oh yeah, right, that did happen. Yeah. Or maybe you or just ma- blocked it out, Sarah. <laughs> Trauma. I mean, it was uh, always winter. Yeah, it was always winter, cold and scary. I slipped a lot on my butt. So. When did you first hear about Samuel Beckett? I I was thinking about this this morning to try to come up with a good answer. And I really don't know. But I think I knew about Waiting for Godot or Godot. Listeners, I'm really not sure. So I'm probably going to use both pronunciations and you can tell me which one is wrong. But I think I first heard about that play um, when I was in high school. But I'm not Mm -hmm. sure I knew anything about Samuel Beckett until college. And I think when I took my first playwriting class is when I really learned about Sam Beckett. What about you, Sarah? Yes, kind of in a similar boat. I heard of the play Waiting for Godot or Godot from kind of the mainstream kind of popular culture, kind of making fun of, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever weird theater you'll you'll see on the show. And like they're making fun. They'll make a reference to it. But other than that, I didn't know much about him him or his plays until college and I think I was taking like a contemporary or most or like a solo performance class I just remember people all my teachers refer to him a lot (laughs) like they (laughs) were always kind of using him as as an example and I guess he's pretty important. Do you remember what your impression of him was when they would refer to him? Like what was the sense you got of who he was? The sense I got he was some kind of a a rule breaker or like he just did something that no one else ever did before. And I like read his plays in college. And I'm like, I it was really hard for me to grasp why he was so important in college. Yeah. But I think it's because I was in college. I was kind of in this like sheltered place. I wasn't really living my life. Like I wasn't living from, I didn't even know what my paycheck looked like. <laughs> you know, I just didn't know anything yeah. much about life, but it's like after like, going day to day, working a horrible jobs to jobs. And like, I'm like, what's the point of all this? You know, <laughs> having this kind of sense of feeling of doom. 
then I'm like, oh, I think I understand now. What that, that was like your World War One experience. <laughs> You're like, now I can understand Beckett because I also have been through <laughs> trauma. Oh my gosh. I, you know, for this episode, when I was reading up on him and like refreshing my m- memory of Samuel Beckett and his work and one thing I kept thinking about was what would Samuel Beckett think about social media? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Good question. Right? What do you think he would say? I think he would be – well, I actually don't think he would be all that surprised because he was so aware of the human condition, it seems to me, and mm. like the absurdity of the things that people do to try to feel less alone <laughs> and yeah. less you know, despairing. And so – isn't that what social media is all about? It's like it's like this yeah, yeah. totally fa- false facade that right. makes us feel like we're getting closer to each other. So I think in that sense he would probably recognize it even if the even if the technology was foreign to him. Oh, this reminded me of I think it was an article in New York Times about how human contact is going to be a luxury. Did you come across that? No. It like how older seniors are being introduced with the screens, like one-on-one conversations with someone from like another side of the world, kind of like hired to do it as their caretaker, you know? And then how it would, the future, it seems like older people are going to have to pay for that human contact to, you know, that caretaking. And I just thought, man, this is like the the, the dystopia of it all. <laughs> you know, one of my students was just telling me about, because they're doing a project about drugs and addiction, my students are, and one of them was researching the policies at the local jail. And they have this new policy, which apparently is becoming more and more common, where inmates are not allowed to meet face-to-face with their family members anymore. Instead, it's done through screens. And the jails say that, you know, this allows them to have more people talk to each other and there aren't as long lines. But, you know, my student was pointing out that then the inmates never get that in-person meeting with their loved ones because instead it's all done over Skype or FaceTime or whatever. And all of that stuff does feel very in the vein of Samuel Beckett. That this mm-hmm. this sense of us becoming like more isolated and more I don't know separated and lonely, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, yeah. So Sam Beckett was he lived from 1906 to 1989. So he saw a lot of upheaval in the world, both world wars, and and he was one of the last modernists or one of the first postmodernists or both. I don't know how you think of him, but. I guess people don't quite know where to put him. Yeah, I, he kind of is sort of in the in between. Like, yeah, he, yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, I don't because he's um he's really responding, I think, to the horrors of World War One and World War Two, and there's a lot of absurdity in his work. But I think that's the ble- best place to be, you guys. <laughs> You're <laughs> kind of in the middle, and no one can actually pinpoint you where. And that's, I think that's the sweet spot you want to be in. <laughs> yeah, that's good advice. And one of my favorite things about Samuel Beckett is his use of humor and how, actually, I think of your plays like this too, Sarah, That and also the Russian plays, you know, like Chekhov is very much in this vein, but this sense of you laugh to keep from crying, you know, or mm. that you're you're portraying something really heart-wrenching or 
tragic, but it's really, really funny. Or you laugh and laugh and laugh, and then at the end of the play, you're like, oh my gosh, why was I laughing? I would really love to understand why people think Samuel Beckett is funny. Really? (laughs) I don't find him funny at all. Or I just find it very, like, just so grippingly depressing. (laughs) But in Endgame, what about the part where in Endgame... His parents are like in the trash cans. <laughs> I mean, it's just okay. so absurd. I mean, it's All right. it's yeah. terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. But okay, true. Visually, I could see that. But I'm like, when I'm reading it and then yeah. just reading the words, and then I kind of like, I find it just, oh. What? Like sad or just like boring? It's <laughs> <laughs> boring is a good word too. <laughs> but it's just so reflective of how, of, yeah, what you said is like human conditions mm-hmm. and like kind of. And so I, it's like I, I don't, I don't want to face that. <laughs> My, like life is already like horrible as it is. I don't want to face it even more. Yeah, like, he could like really puts it right in front of your face in a way. I just get a, I get a visceral reaction. Do you have a favorite one of his plays? Um, let's see. I, you know, I actually do like. <laughs> I really do like waiting for Godot. Yeah, and actually inspired me to write that play. I wrote and call it uh, grad school waiting for Mr. Rogers. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was like all these, well, listeners, you obviously have not read the play cause I didn't do anything with it <laughs> or Maybe whatever. It's time, but, Sarah. And you know, it's so funny because uh, just, you know, there's like a documentary of Mr. Rogers and there's going to be a biopic about him. Yeah. And I was just like, maybe I should revisit this play. Mr. Rogers is having a moment. It'd be a great way, I guess, to sort of mash Samuel Beckett and Mr. Rogers together. <laughs> have a little wedding. <laughs> well, these two guys. I think they would get along. You think so? I don't know. I mean, I just... I just have this sense of like they both think very deeply about what it is to be a good person, I guess. I don't know. Mm. They just come out with very different approaches. Yeah. Mr. Rogers is like, you are special. And Samuel Beckett is like, you're not special. We're all going to die. <laughs> so I don't think they could be in the same room together. <laughs> Uh, I I feel like Mr. Rogers would just kind of be sitting like if they were in a room together. Mr. Rogers would be really open and kind of like like want to talk to you, and Samuel Beckett would be like, "Why is the sun so sh- <laughs> shining so brightly today?" <laughs> you know. But don't you think if anybody could understand and like bring the light out of Samuel Beckett, it would be Mr. Rogers. <laughs> yeah. Well, both of them are dead, so they can't tell us. <laughs> um, but you were talking about your play, Waiting for oh, Mr. Yeah. Rogers. Yes. The play that I wrote, I bought this book of Mr. Rogers, like according according to Mr. Rogers, it's all his kind of sayings and things he said. And I just remember like, man, he's so, he was so nice to me when I was growing up. Like, <laughs> I was just watching TV as a child. Yeah. Like, wow. Every, you know, every afternoon. And I just remember reading Way for Godot and I'm like, man, this play is kind of dark and weird I was kind of reading both of these things at the same time and mm-hmm. I was like I wonder what I wonder what those puppets and the like where are the puppets today in the Mr. Rogers um neighborhood that was kind of like my thought process and then so I had written a play about all those puppets 
not knowing that Mr. Rogers was dead. <laughs> waiting for him. See, I mean, that's what I mean. That's tragic, but it makes me laugh. That's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. I see. Okay. I see what you mean. Yeah. So that's the play I wrote inspired by uh, Samuel Beckett. I think you should send that play around. Yeah. It was really funny. I just remember the puppets, like, weren't they like in a box or something? Or coming mm-hmm. out of the they box? Were, they, were in a, they were in a cardboard box. <laughs> yeah. And there was like a hole that was starting to break and there was this like a little cockroach that go in and out oh, of the yes, hole. Oh, yes. The cockroach. <laughs> And being like, I'm seeing a lot of sh- crappy stuff out there, you guys. Don't leave. <laughs> and they're like, we got to leave. And then, and, and then the whole box is starting to flood mm-hmm. with water because it's breaking apart. But yeah, that was a, that was like a really fun play to write, and it really it was hilarious. Forced me. It, and all I saw was a reading of it. But well, should we talk about some interesting facts about Samuel Beckett? Yeah. Um, so things I came across was that he was friends with James Joyce, which I was like, okay, all right. I didn't see that. <laughs> Both Irish. <laughs> oh, and then you shared about the how he got stabbed by a French pimp. Yeah, in 1938, he was walking down the street one night. So I guess he would have been like 32. And all of a sudden, this man came up to him and stabbed him and just narrowly missed his lung and his heart I think and and it was yeah it was like a French pimp and then later in the trial this man said I don't know why I stabbed you but then I was reading about this this morning and he that's how he fell in love with his wife because this woman he kind of knew came to visit him every day in the hospital and he fell in love with her and then they got married so you never know. Who was she? Was she a prostitute? No, no, I don't think so. Um, no, you know, was... I don't have her name available to me right now, but. Hmm, that's so interesting. No, she was just worried about him dying. So she came to visit him. Yeah. Okay. I think. All right. <laughs> you guys, if you find, I mean, go to a hospital. And... <laughs> <laughs> ask, for, ask for all the stabbing victims. Yeah. Wow. Who are single. This, it was a different time. It was a different time. No one will go to a hospital now. And then um, he fought against the Nazis mm. when they occupied France. He joined the French resistance and worked as a courier and translator. Yeah. And yeah, this is the stuff that I thought was interesting. So his life before France, he was like writing novels and prose. And he it was this really long, kind of dense types of work that he was doing and it's it didn't from what i could tell like oh maybe he was trying to emulate joyce because he was Mm -hmm. like but like life after france after um the occupation oh this is what it came across while visiting dublin in his mother's room he had a revelation that he could never write like joyce and that he would do less rather than more and i mean less you say less but he wrote like 33 plays right novels right And this is the quote I found is that I realized that Joyce had gone as far as one could in a direction of knowing more, being in control of one's material. He was always adding to it. You only have to look at his proofs to see that. I realized that my own way was in impoverishment and lack of knowledge and in taking away and subtracting rather than in adding. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. And there's another thing I found out it was funny to learn was when he was in school I think Trinity College don't quote on me that you guys but he was in school after one year he just drops out feeling like I could never uh teach or because I just don't know well you know kind of like this attitude 
yeah and then and like he, there's nothing more he could or there's nothing more in him that he'll be able to teach or there's nothing in him to teach or something in that idea but do you think he was just really insecure no i think maybe he was comfortable with not knowing and with leaving only okay so maybe what he means by doing less rather than more is like if J- if joyce fills in all the details beckett only does a sketch right that like Mm -hmm. he doesn't feel the need to fill in everything and he's comfortable with not knowing everything Mm. that's my hypothesis and maybe he thought to teach maybe he because he felt like he didn't know enough he thought that to teach would be dishonest i don't know it's interesting yeah no i could see that and he also didn't like to be in the spotlight he won the nobel prize in 1969 but he wouldn't go accept it in person because he didn't want to have to give a speech so maybe that's maybe that is insecurity or maybe it's just like he didn't want people looking at him who is this guy (laughs) (laughs) who is he oh my gosh if if any relatives of samuel beckett is listening to this right now reach out and tell us what (laughs) you know yeah where are you who are you do you write plays it's so funny because when i write plays i i kind of that is such interesting he says that because when i see a playwright and they're just really just they, they just fill the pages like they're just like so detailed and so um specific and it's like really wonderful and i'm like for me i like the empty space Mm -hmm. and then maybe that's another thing i like about comedy sketch writing is like we don't need to say more than this like Mm -hmm. four pages that's it in this moment we're done it's really rapid fast we write it all get it out and then we're done we're never looking back at this ever again (laughs) yeah well and you don't have to fill in all the psychological um details Mm -hmm. or character background like i think that is something really striking about beckett's work in comparison to the people who came before him is that i mean who are his characters like we have no idea we meet mm-hmm. um estragon and vladimir and we have no idea like where these people came from or right or who their families were or how they got to this point and it doesn't matter that's not what the play is about you know they could be anybody and so Maybe that's also what he meant about doing less is that he's trying to get at the essential core of people and what, you know, what it means to be people in relationship with one another, trying to figure out the meaning of life as human beings, you know, mm-hmm. and it, and that it could be anybody in his play and, and kind of like sketch comedy too, you know, you don't have to fill in all this right. backstory. Oh, so listeners, I tweeted out, what's your favorite play? Oh, yeah. And and the plays I, the response that we received was Waiting for Godot, Endgame, and Crap's Last Tape. Which I have never read, but you have. I have. And I also watched the performance of it on YouTube, which I could link out people are interested ha 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 now that we're talking about this reading craps last tape i maybe the reaction i got it was and i think i get this maybe i don't know why i get this response but i keep putting my ideas on it like i keep finding myself in those characters in such weird ways like i i'm like oh my gosh yeah like 
in Endgame, my life is a trash can <laughs> or, or something. Like I, yeah. or again, I just, I, I, it's like I'm forcing these meanings on yeah. to these plays because that ambiguity kind of that's he let leaves it a little open it does forces the mind or at least for me to wander a bit and make it fill in filling in those ideas and gaps myself yeah well and also it leaves room for the director and the actors to do that mm-hmm. and make it their own thing although yeah. wasn't he really um he didn't like it when people would add all these other layers of meaning onto his plays in productions Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, like I think I think sometimes he would, if people wanted to do a production of one of his plays like in a very specific setting that was not what he wrote, he would shut down the show. So like in that sense, he 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 was kind of controlling. <laughs> I, I think he is controlling. I mean, so the Craps last, last Tape, the first page is like really detailed in his action. Like every action is like the characters peeling banana takes a bite of the banana puts away the banana peel, <laughs> opens the box like it was so the actions are so specific right and then so i had to watch a video i'm like what what these like it feels like the actions feel so much longer than it is yeah <laughs> and i see the character and it's just it's literally five seconds but on the page he every millisecond just feels counted for isn't that interesting to have such precise stage directions when so many other things about the plays are are left out or not mm-hmm. not specified? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, who is this person? He never tells us. Where did he get this banana? <laughs> <laughs> Why is he eating a banana today? Well, and I found a clip of him just walking along a street in Berlin. Oh, really? So we'll share that, too. Oh, I want to watch Listeners. that. Watch it's just that. Samuel Beckett walking around and then reading the newspaper and then walking around some more. Do you think he would like this podcast? I mean, how could he not? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't know. Well, our listeners, um, if you love Samuel Beckett, if you have some thoughts or any ideas or favorite plays, any any comments about Samuel Beckett, feel free to share with us. You know where we are. We're at, at Beckett's Babies. So. Yeah, and if you know anyone who knew him or is his family member. Or if you're Irish. If you're <laughs> Irish, let us know. Well, yeah. shall we do glistens? I think it's that yes. time. What's your mm-hmm. glisten, Sarah? Oh, my glisten is... Wow. It's like the first time I feel like I don't know what my glisten is. Really? Yeah. I guess I guess it's um so listeners you may or may not know if you're binging you is that I have been looking for a job. <laughs> <laughs> I left my job, my last job a couple of months ago and and these last two, couple of months has been really great actually. Like I've been really refocusing my energy into things I love and reading and writing and meeting with people I haven't seen and, but also applying for jobs. And (laughs) I use LinkedIn and I came across a few recruiters and recruiters are so weird. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was like, they're kind of like agents, like actress agent, mm-hmm. you know? They want to know everything about you. They love you. They're like, wow, this is so great. You have a great resume. You're like, this is what people are looking for. You know, no fee or anything. I'm going to put you out there. I'm going to put you on these interviews, like auditions, you know? Like, I'm going to. And uh, it's so weird that this job exists. Like, I just keep thinking, like, why do these, why do people create jobs like this? Like, yeah. You know, making, I don't want to say it's out of nothing, but it's just, they do come out of nowhere. Like, social media manager comes out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because. Well, except oh, yeah. that it's so that the other people don't have to focus on that part of the job as much, right? Right, right. I guess. But, I, but yeah, it was my first time working with a couple of recruiters, and I'm like, this is a weird process, but <laughs> it it's helping me to not keep up like submitting myself. Yeah. You know, I'm just yeah. gonna, they kind of do the, the grunt work almost, but we'll see how this turns out. I'll, I'll keep you all posted. Okay. Please do. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, I guess my lesson is, um, so I'm on spring break right now, although I guess when this airs, it will no longer be true, but um, the state theater, which is the theater in Traverse city, that movie theater that um, Michael Moore, renovated um they have free movies all day every day all week yeah it's amazing and and they're like second chances you know so if you missed a movie the first time around you can see it for free this week um so anyway so yesterday i saw rbg the documentary about ruth bader ginsburg and my glisten is her and Mm. just how amazing she is and Mm -hmm. what a Mm -hmm. life she's had there's one part of the documentary where um she was talking about and the and her biographers were talking about how she when she started law school her husband had cancer she had a young young child like toddler age and she was you know trying to complete all her law school work and she would get the notes from her husband's classmates and type up those for him and and then she'd do her own work and she would go to bed at like four in the morning and get up at I don't know six you know and do it all over mm. again and I was just thinking wow like that kind of energy is so amazing and what what could I accomplish if I only slept two hours a night probably yeah. not very much because I would probably like self-destruct <laughs> after a week but some people yeah. are able um, to do that I think last month or a couple months ago, I went to an RBG exhibit at Skirball Cultural Center. And I, yeah, everything you're saying, like, I was just so amazed of her life. One of the things that really stuck uh, out to me was her husband, like her relationship with her husband, the two of them together, and how he also shared some responsibilities too in the house, like kind of like so they could both do things together yeah. like to achieve their goal. Like I, that kind of compromising in the relationship was like really, it, it, now today it's kind of like, well, no, duh. But it's like back then, you know, right. it wasn't a very common thing. That attitude wasn't very common. And he was so supportive of her career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't realize before how, important he was in making the case for her to be appointed to the Supreme Court. That was like, he he really mm-hmm. pushed for that. Yeah. 
So yeah, yeah. that's my lesson. RBG. Great. RBG. How's she doing right now? Is she doing okay? I think she is doing okay. She um she wasn't she in the hospital a few months ago? Yeah. Yeah. But because I think she like broke a couple ribs. It was like she fell and then in her office and then she like went home that night and came back to work the right, next day, right. you know. And then it was like at least a day after her fall that she finally agreed to go to the doctor and they found that she had broken two ribs. But she's had cancer twice, you know. She's very fierce. Yeah, she's resilient. She's a fighter. She's, oh, my God. Please live for another 30 years. <laughs> yeah. or at least I think like, she would be 116. If she can just, just live out this administration, at least. Yeah. Uh, all right, guys. On that note. <laughs> let's uh, move forth all let's all do our thing thanks have for a listening. great week oh follow us on Beckett's Babies and and if you like what you hear share it with your friends yeah share with your friends and or retweet or share um, the, uh, an episode or visit our website tell us what you like about the playwriting exercise or you don't <laughs> I like feedback. I really do like feedback. Yeah, me too. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye.